Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. This session is in addition to our course in Introduction to Literature, which features lectures on Fahrenheit 451, Call of the Wild, Lord of the Flies, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Since so many of you are so familiar with the story, I won't summarize it to begin with, but the lecture offers enough quotations and summaries throughout before commenting but you'll be able to enjoy it even if you haven't yet reread A Christmas Carol this December. But you will reread it after this talk. Now, in the second chapter of A Christmas Carol, we see the intention of the narrator and perhaps of Charles Dickens disclosed more clearly, I think, than anywhere else. Here in that chapter, Scrooge meets the spirit of Christmas past. That spirit is described in the following way. Quote, the curtains of his bed, that is, Scrooge's bed, were drawn aside. I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them. As close to it, as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. End quote. The narrator speaks directly to the reader in this passage and tells us that he is as close to us as the spirit is to Scrooge. The narrator reaches past the fourth wall to speak directly to the reader. There's a sort of analogy here. The spirit is to Scrooge as the narrator is to us. So if there is something wrong about Scrooge's orientation towards the world, the narrator warns us that we ourselves might be in possession of the same malady that Scrooge has. That is, Scrooge's name is synonymous with greed and miserliness. He is so extreme or spectacular in embodying his vice that we are likely not to think that we participate in it insofar as when we compare ourselves to Scrooge, we see a lot of distance. We don't really see ourselves in Scrooge. But the narrator warns us that we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook too easily. Just because someone else is bad, it doesn't follow or mean that we are good. But let's turn back to the text to get a more precise account of how Scrooge understands himself and the world. Now that we have grasped the narrator's intention, which is to assist us in seeing and overcoming in ourselves whatever it is that plagues Scrooge, let's turn to the first page. The book begins with what at first appears to be an innocuous idiom. Old Marley, Scrooge's former business partner, is dead as a doornail. The narrator suddenly realizes he doesn't really know what he's saying. He doesn't know what it means to be as dead as a doornail. He seeks a rational or reasonable explanation to justify the turn of phrase, dead as a doornail. However, a cursory glance at the phrase is enough to make one think that uh, one is dead as a coffin nail might be a more reasonable expression. However, the narrator strikingly halts his investigation into the matter and says, the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. 
we might be inclined to take this sentence as being sarcastic or some kind of joke, thinking that the country might cease to exist if its inherited similes are discarded and replaced by more rational expressions. But let's try to take the narrator seriously for a moment. Part of what he might be getting at is that countries are held together by inherited traditions, some of which might seem to be more reasonable than others, but that we should tread very lightly when we seek to discard those traditions in the name of rationality. Indeed, Scrooge himself regularly dismisses sacred traditions traditions in favor of what he takes to be a more rational mode of being in the world. One of the first things we learn about Scrooge is that on the day of Marley's funeral, Scrooge made sure to focus on executing business deals rather than mourning his friend. A shrewd and, and clever calculator of gain might easily see uh, that mourning is wasted time. Likewise, Scrooge sees Christmas as a kind of delusion that is meant to swindle people into giving up their money and a day upon which employers have their pockets picked as their employees who are vicious from Scrooge's perspective, take the day off. Let's consider the argument against Christmas that Scrooge makes to his nephew. His nephew asks Scrooge why he is so angry or cross, and Scrooge replies, What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you? but a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer, a time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should! The first part of this speech is certainly cynical, but probably many of you and myself have felt something like this on a dark day before Christmas as you trudge through a horrible Walmart in search of expensive things for your nephew. That at least in that moment, Christmas feels like more of a burden or a cost than a good thing. What is most striking is how Scrooge ends his speech to his nephew when he says that every idiot who celebrates Christmas should be killed. Perhaps Scrooge exaggerates, but we have to ask, why is he so angry? If he has seen through the silly convention or tradition of Christmas, why doesn't he simply enjoy his superiority to the suckers who waste their time and money on Christmas, shouldn't Scrooge be able to get the advantage over them? Perhaps Scrooge has not fully convinced himself of the superiority of his view or argument. There is still some part of him that suspects that the Christmas advocates are correct, or some part of him even longs for them to be correct. If everyone who celebrated Christmas was boiled with their puddings, then Scrooge wouldn't have to endure any uncertainty about his approach to Christmas. He would be sure, somehow, that it was right. Two pages later, Scrooge also attacks love, 
saying that it is even more ridiculous than Christmas. To feel love is to admit one's own incompleteness. To admit that we long to feel whole, and yet that the pursuit of such wholeness is not possible on our own. That our happiness or wholeness depends on another whom we cannot control. To love is to admit our dependence on others and our vulnerability in light of that dependence. Scrooge does not love, and while he is rich, he, is, he does not spend his money. Scrooge's stance toward the world is one of self-protection. Money represents potentiality. By having as much money stored up as possible, one prepares to meet any unanticipated emergency or difficulty in the future, ensuring that one is protected. Scrooge maximizes his pursuit of gain in the present so that he will be safe in the future. But death is one circumstance he cannot ward off. One source of his anger may be that despite all of the precautions he has taken, he can't make himself invulnerable. And generous and loving people like his nephew kindle doubts in Scrooge that his path is correct. Scrooge has to insist that love and Christmas are delusional, but his nephew is able to get under his skin by pointing out that Scrooge doesn't seem happy. So Scrooge has avoided the risks that attend love, but this has also come at the great cost of never experiencing the warm goods that can attend love and friendship. And Scrooge's dismissal of love here is elaborated on in the images that the ghost of Christmas past puts before him. We learn that, as a boy, Scrooge spent many Christmases away from home, at a boarding school, that increasingly fell into disrepair. We learn as well that his father was unkind. And because his mother is not mentioned, we are led to wonder if she died early. Which is to say, Dickens discloses reasons for why circumstance might have disposed Scrooge to take a self-protective stance toward the world. However, Scrooge is also presented with his old boss, Fezziwig, a man who is almost entirely the opposite of Scrooge. Whereas in the first chapter of the book, we see Scrooge uh, give his clerk only one coal to try to warm his fire. Uh, we see that Fezziwig gives uh, his fire many, many coals uh, so that his workers can enjoy. And we see that Fezziwig gets more out of his workers precisely because he is kinder to them. Even if, you could say, you wanted to interpret life economically, one could say that Fezziwig's approach is better in as much as he gets much more out of his workers than Scrooge. Um, but we might add to this that Scrooge's life was not simply misery after misery. He saw examples of warm and generous people whom he might have learned how to imitate. But let's take a close look at his interactions with his Belle fiancé who leaves him, or with his fiancé Belle who leaves him. This might be the most important moment that happens uh, as the ghost of Christmas past is showing him images. Belle and Scrooge have a discussion after a funeral, for Belle is wearing a mourning dress, and she claims that another idol has displaced her in Scrooge's mind. 
a golden one, that he is more preoccupied with gain than he is with her. Now, some people have suggested to me in light of this passage that, well, aren't idols bad things? And in this way, is Bell not quite as good as she seems? It's hard to say. But however this may be, we know that Scrooge offers an argument for why he is preoccupied with pursuing money. Quote, this is Scrooge's uh, statement. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing which it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. End quote. Scrooge highlights a contradiction of which we are still familiar with today. It is wretched and miserable to undergo the deprivations of poverty. To be without resource and without hope is something we all strive to avoid. And yet, this very striving to move as far away from that wretched condition as we can is blamed. Scrooge then sees himself as having pierced through the appearances, and so he makes himself more reasonable than those who are mired in this contradiction. He agrees with the first argument that poverty is bad, and so he sees acquiring as much money as possible to be the reasonable response to the situation the humans find themselves in. He says of himself later in the conversation that he has grown wiser. But Bell responds that Scrooge is overly motivated by fear. She points out as well that his passionate pursuit of gain is so overpowering that were he to meet her today, he would have no interest in her, for her family is not rich. Scrooge feels the sting of this argument and realizes it is true, and so Bell leaves him. Scrooge can't bear to see this image, but the spirit compounds his pain by showing Scrooge Bell with a big, happy family that obviously does not include him. In this way, Dickens suggests that education may have to be painful in order to be effective. By showing Scrooge this set of images, the spirit first allows us to be sympathetic towards Scrooge. His childhood was, besides his sister, mostly loveless. But then the spirit complicates this picture by showing that Scrooge had friends and an employer worthy of imitation, which is to say he experienced genuine warmth. The spirit doesn't let Scrooge just get away with some kind of trauma-related account of his life. Scrooge's life was bad, but it was also good. In this way, the spirit attempts to induce within Scrooge a sense that he is responsible for how he turned out. And by showing him Fezziwig and Bell, he shows the great goods that are, that are available to those who have the toughness to open themselves up to the tenderness of love. After meeting with the first spirit, Scrooge feels a small pang of doubt about how he has treated his clerk. And it is worth noting that in the first chapter of the book, we did not learn the names of either Scrooge's clerk or his nephew, Bob Cratchit, or, or his nephew, Bob Cratchit and Fred, respectively. In that way, 
the narrator partially adopts Scrooge's perspective. It's not that Scrooge doesn't know their names, but it's rather the case that he cares so little for them that they are replaceable or interchangeable with anybody else. In other words, they're both just annoying or um, Bob is just a worker replaceable by any other. The other key thing that Scrooge feels is pain. He really wants to flee the family scene with Belle as quickly as he can. The pain he feels is a strong sign that he does not fully believe in his interpretation of human life. If he did, he might have congratulated himself on losing Belle's love. Less bills to pay. No children. But rather than thinking that, he is racked with pain. And this indicates his deep regret. And so this pushes him to try and face up to whether or not his argument that love is delusional is really true. One other passing note is that the spirits make their arguments with images. If we assume that the spirits wish to be maximally effective in their effort to persuade Scrooge and therefore save his soul, then it must follow that they know that bare arguments or reason are not enough to move Scrooge. His encounter with the images of past, present, and future affect him emotionally. And so the pain and pleasure he experiences while watching are just as important for his education as the arguments that the spirits make. We move to the spirit of Christmas present. Whereas the first spirit came directly to Scrooge, the second spirit forces Scrooge to go towards it making him take a small measure of responsibility for his own education. The ghost of Christmas present is one of great plenty and vitality. He is in possession of good things, almost to the point of wastefulness. Scrooge asks if he has many brothers, and the spirit replies that he has over 1,800, to which Scrooge tellingly mutters, quote, a tremendous family to provide for, end quote. Which is to say, Scrooge is still providing for himself a selfish, self-protective, and purely economic interpretation of life. Rather than being curious about the spirit realm and how it could possibly sustain this size of family, or being impressed by how vibrant and vital such a family must be, Scrooge's habitual orientation primes him to perceive the price tag of such a family before anything else. Which is to say, in spite of the shocks that Scrooge received from the ghost of Christmas past, he is here ultimately not yet very moved. We are shown a picture, or rather the ghost of Christmas present, shows us a picture of shopkeepers beautifully arranging their goods. We see shoveling and snowball fights. And there's a general sense of purpose that the people of Scrooge's city carry out as they make their final Christmas preparations, especially those related to cooking, for many did not possess in-house stoves. Scrooge sees the spirit ending arguments between people who disagree or who run into each other. And we see the spirit putting nice seasoning from his torch onto the meals of the poorest who walk by. And 
Scrooge suddenly asks the spirit why he seeks to close down bakeries or public ovens on Sundays. And here is how the spirit replies. Quote, There are some upon this earth, yours, who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doing on themselves, not us. So, we see that Scrooge attempts to catch the spirit in a contradiction. On one hand, the spirit generously ends arguments and seasons food. And, on the other, the spirit allegedly closes down the very means by which the poor might have a warm meal on Sundays, the day they are most likely to have time off. This is not unlike when Scrooge tried to catch Marley's ghost off guard in the first chapter. Marley's ghost entered Scrooge's room by passing through the door without opening it. Scrooge asked him to sit down in the hope that he would awkwardly pass through the chair and perhaps then exempt Scrooge from any terror that might follow. But Marley sat in the chair as if he was a purely physical being, which is to say, Scrooge's attempts to use reason as a weapon against the spirits fall short. As for Scrooge's response, or sorry, as for the spirit's response to Scrooge, he makes the claim that many people do acts in the spirit's name, or we might say in God's name, but who do not really do God's work. And implicitly then, the spirit claims that English politicians who seek to close bakeries on Sundays in order to force people to honor God, or to make it a bit easier for them to honor God, are wrong in doing so. It is hard to say if this gives us a genuine view into Dickens' account of piety, or uh, into the narrator's account of piety. But even taken on its own terms, just as a statement by the ghost of Christmas present, we could say this. The spirit seems to indicate that the bakeries should remain open. And this raises a curious question. What is more in keeping with honoring God? Proclaiming a day as sacred and disallowing lowly economic activity and also making time so it's more easy to go to church or is God honored more by allowing people to enjoy earthly delights and comforts with their economic activities unfettered? In other words, the Spirit seems to propose a fairly easygoing, humane account of piety. But Scrooge does not even meet this lowered standard. Now, uh, by this Spirit, Scrooge is shown Bob Cratchit's home where a modest meal is heartily enjoyed by all. Bob offers a toast to Scrooge, for even if Scrooge is nasty, even if he is miserly most of the time, by Bob's account, Scrooge is still a benefactor to the Cratchit family, inasmuch as he reliably pays Bob, 
Without Scrooge, this meal was not possible. Bob is able to see that Scrooge is not entirely bad and highlights this small measure of goodness, even at the cost of his wife's disappointment at his insistence on this toast. The spirit then shows Scrooge miners on a moor. He then shows Scrooge men in a lighthouse. And then he goes farther out to see men at sea, away from home on Christmas. Each of these groups of men attempts to make the most out of Christmas. Sometimes all they can do is whistle. But nevertheless, all of them find small ways to honor the day and take greater joy on that day precisely because it is Christmas. Now, after this long detour away from the Cratchit house, away from the city, after this long detour, the ghost returns to Scrooge's town or city, where he sees that Scrooge is the butt of the joke at his nephew Fred's party. Nevertheless, Scrooge is very taken in by the merriment and wishes that he could be a participant himself, even in light of the fact that he's been laughed at or is the butt of the joke at the party. But the party gives way to a perplexing image. Shortly before the spirit leaves Scrooge, he, he shows him two ugly children clinging to the spirit. Scrooge asks if these children belong to the spirit, and he has a hard time finding the right words. For we all want to say that somebody's children are beautiful, but Scrooge notices that these children are not at all beautiful. But, but nevertheless, uh, he uh, asks if the children belong to the spirit. And the spirit replies in this way, quote, They, uh, the two ugly children, are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both in all of their degrees. But most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. This is a strange and, I mean, quite interesting passage. Um, and there's probably more in it than I can see. But we can say this. The Spirit claims that the offspring of man are ignorance and want, which is to say, their existence did not precede that of man, but only came into being because of human beings. Inasmuch as these evils are our offspring and are not part of our original condition, does this indicate a kind of fall from that condition? In other words, is this Charles Dickens' narrator's interpretation of the fall of man? It's hard to say, but we can say this. To be ignorant is not to know. To have want is to experience a lack or feeling of incompletion. The spirit warns Scrooge of both, both ignorance and want, but insists that ignorance is more intimately tied to doom. Perhaps, then, if one is able to escape ignorance, one will be in a better position to deal with want or with one's awareness or feeling of incompletion. Presumably, we have to think through how ignorance and want apply to Scrooge. But this is also a tricky business. 
Because if we suppose that Scrooge is ignorant, how can we blame him for handling his feeling of incompletion so poorly? For the spirit to make any sense, he would have to be willing to make the claim that Scrooge is aware of what he doesn't know, and yet has not made the move to remedy the ignorance. For instance, if I was in charge of the United States' foreign policy toward Russia and Ukraine, and I didn't spend any time reading books about those countries, or talking to others who know more, but I still made decisions, I would be ignorant, and I would be aware of my ignorance, and therefore morally culpable. The narrator does little to explain the presence of these children, but if this book is written with sufficient care, as I think we ought to suppose it is, based on how much we've learned so far, I think that a closer investigation than the one I offer here would reveal more about the children of, of ignorance and want. Now, the ghost of thing of things yet to appear, or sorry, the ghost of things yet to come appears. It looks like a grim reaper and says nothing, but it only points towards things. In this way, the spirit demands much more of Scrooge than the other spirits, for it compels Scrooge to ask and answer his own questions. The spirit explains nothing. This spirit shows Scrooge images of groups of people speaking about him, but who never use his name. This allows Scrooge a small degree of plausible deniability that they may not necessarily be speaking about him. Indeed, as he moves through the images, he strains, looking for himself somewhere, trying to see himself so that he might confirm this. But instead, Scrooge seems to be in the midst of an experience, which is the opposite of the one that Tom Sawyer enjoyed. Scrooge is invited to attend his own funeral, only to find out that people's lives have in many cases improved with his absence. He sees that he has been humiliated by thieves who stole his bed curtains and funeral, funeral shirt. He sees men that he conducted business with who would only consider attending his funeral if a lunch is provided, and the tiny Tim is dead. He is almost forced to look at his own dead body, but he refuses to lift a cloth that might reveal his own face to him. The spirit does not let him off the hook and eventually shows him his gravestone. Scrooge sees with a finality that he will die and that there is no necessity that he will become better in light of his ghostly education. And crucially, the spirit refuses to tell Scrooge if he can change his fate. In this way, the spirit makes it so that Scrooge must labor without being certain that his good deeds will necessarily yield any reward. And Scrooge does seem to turn over a new leaf. He seeks to undo many of his wrongs that we saw him commit in the first chapter. He helps the Cratchit family in innumerable ways. He donates massive amounts of money to charity. He visits his nephew's party, and he does not grow angry when others laugh at him for his great change. He says that he will live in the past, the present, and the future. It is not immediately obvious how to put this disposition into our own words of living in the past, the present, and the future. 
but we might say that this disposition entails an unflinching awareness of and willingness to look at our deeds from the past, especially those deeds which deeds which we are ashamed of. It might also include a willingness in the present to course correct our present actions and habits in light our in light of our awareness of the shameful things we've done in the past. And it might also include an ability to coordinate our actions towards clear future goals or states of being. Um, but we are left with one crucial question. What at bottom motivates Scrooge's change? His former fiancée, Belle, told him that he changed out one idol for another in preferring money to her. But has Scrooge here merely changed out one fear for another? Before, he feared that pain, he feared the pain that at least potentially attends all loving attachments to others. He sought to fortify himself against evils through the acquisition of money and through an unwillingness to open himself up to others. Is he now moved by fear of death and fear of punishment in the afterlife? Or is he now genuinely moved by a desire to benefit others, regardless of the rewards that may come to him? This is a big question, and if you have thoughts about it, I hope that you will let me know. But that's all I have to say about A Christmas Carol. So, Brian Cerberus Wilson, out.